You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. Yet again, we're in the studio, still working on Samuel. We're going to be here for a while. (laughs) We're going to be here for a good while. Um, We uh, got partway through chapter eight, just kind of the very beginning of that. Yeah. And we're going to talk, we're going to go through that, and then we are going to probably get into nine a little bit before we're done here. I I think we are, because we don't have a whole lot of eight left, and um, there's... You know, some things that we want to point out, but there's not a whole lot of depth to, to explore beyond what's in the page, other than just some background information to kind of, you know, make it a little fuller picture. But when we left off last week, Israel had demanded a king, and we were talking about why that was not such a great thing to do. And one of the primary reasons is in Exodus 19.6, God had told Israel that he was wanted to make them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So their leadership wasn't supposed to be kings. Their leadership is supposed to be priests. It's supposed to be prophets. It's supposed to be spiritual leadership, not secular leadership. And this is what is going to make them distinct from every other nation on the earth. And in rejecting the leadership God had provided for them and demanding to have a king like other nations, they're saying, we don't want to be who you've called us to be. Mm-hmm. And in effect, they're rejecting the identity that, that God has bestowed on them. Now, that's, that's one train of thought, uh, but you know, basically there's two trains of thought, so we're going to look at both of those before we go any further. The, the first one is that Israel is rejecting that unique status uh, that we went through, and you, know, you never want to reject what God has said is going to be a good thing for you. Right. The second one is that Israel is fulfilling the prophecy as given in Deuteronomy 17.15, in which God says that he will give Israel a king. Mm-hmm. Once they get into the land of Canaan, and those who support this view that God is going to give Israel a king, which I mean is hard for you not to support because it is in Deuteronomy, right? Says the problem isn't with the fact that they ask for a king, but they ask for a king just like other nations. That's the problem. Their motivation was wrong, and the timing's wrong. Yeah, just a little overly specific. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that's. That's going to be a problem. So it, it's still a rejection, even if they were supposed to have a king at some point. It's because they're not looking for the king God wants to give them. They're looking for the king that they want to have. So um, when, when Samuel hears this, I, I love this in verse six, it says, when the, but the thing displeased Samuel, you know, just kind of, <laughs> he's displeased. I don't mm-hmm. know why that word um, amuses me. And I couldn't tell you either. Yeah, well. I think because I see uh, Samuel's kind of being this rough around the edges kind of guy, it, it, to think of him as being displeased it is a little tame for what I would think that his reaction is. And I, I really do. I think that um, as we go through this, that we're going to see that's probably very tame compared to the reaction he actually had. Right. So, um, but he was displeased when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. This is a great bit of advice. When somebody says something that displeases you or something you don't like, 
Don't, Pray. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't don't start running your mouth. Don't start, you know, trying to to let people know what you think about it. You, you pray. And so Samuel's doing the correct thing right here. And he he's angry, really. He's not really just displeased. He He's angry because he sees it as a rejection of himself. And, you know, I can kind of get it. He's been traveling every year through all of Israel so that he can be available for the people, offer sacrifices for them, lead them in the proper worship services, judge their disputes. Mm-hmm. And they're saying, it's not enough. You, you've given your whole life for us. It's not enough. Mm-hmm. And so it makes sense that this is, he's taking this personal. He, yeah. he, and he has right to, I think. But despite all this, he still does the right thing. And, you know, I love it because the, the writer's being very honest about Samuel's emotional condition. He's not trying to hide it. He's not trying to make it look like Samuel just had this wonderful saintly response to it. And, you know, it wasn't, oh, children, now, you know, this is the wrong mm-hmm. thing to do. He, he has a visceral, emotional response to this. Well, and, yeah, I mean, yeah, reasonably so. I mean, I, I know that there's been times when I've been in jobs and places where I've put in a, a ton of work and mm-hmm. it comes time for the promotion and yeah, somebody else gets it. Yeah, and, and we, I think we've all had those moments, so I think we can kind of identify with Samuel here. But I do love his conversation with God. I mean, it, it's kind of epic. Because verse seven, I'm, I'm going to read what the text says and go back and comment. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all the land in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being the king over them. So God acknowledges Samuel's feelings. Mm-hmm. He, he, he doesn't say you shouldn't feel like that. There's a problem with you. You need to get your attitude right. You know, if you were being thankful Instead of focusing on what you deserve, you wouldn't feel this way. God actually says, it, it's okay. Yeah. I, I, I understand why you feel like you do, because they're doing it to me. And we're in this together. So verse eight, he says, according to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them, this is God talking, from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they're doing to you. So you and I really are in this together. We, we are experiencing the exact same thing. And Abraham Joshua Heschel, in his book, The Prophets, if you are interested in prophecy at all in the prophets of the Bible, get that book. It's, yeah. it's one of the best investments you can make. But he talks about how one of the, the major definers of a prophet is that they enter into the pathos of God, is how he, he describes it. Okay. And... It's literally that the prophet feels what God is feeling, that he is so in tune with God that when somebody hurts God, the prophet is hurt. And when God is rejoicing, the prophet rejoices. But he's got to have that emotional connection. It's not just a, a intellectual knowledge of what God is saying or what God is doing, but it is that deep communion that allows them to function as one being in those moments when the prophet's fully inhabiting mm-hmm. their role. Mm-hmm. And that's what Samuel's doing here. This hurt he's feeling is some of it's, yes, it's just for Samuel. And the, the human side of him is feeling the rejection, but he's also feeling the pain that God feels at his rejection. And, you know, that, that leads to some very passionate statements and very passionate actions. And we see that throughout the prophets. Mm-hmm. And so, 
it's, Heschel really focuses on that shared emotional experience between the prophets and God and why that's so significant and how that can even make them look mad. And so uh, Samuel, he doesn't cross that line, but he does seem to be very um, reactive mm-hmm. in a lot of situations. Yeah, yeah so, I can see that. Yeah, he, he's, he's kind of a... I like him because I think he's kind of the grizzly bear prophet is how I kind of see him. You know, he, he not as much as Elijah, but, but close. So I have this image of him. That's just this gnarly old man. So verse nine, now then obey their voice. Still God talking. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who will reign over them. So basically give them what they want. I'm done fighting with them and they can have what they want. But you need to warn them so that, you know, basically warn them so they can't say, well, nobody told us. Right. That, that, you know, right. Yeah. God's head them off at the past because he's dealt with kids before and he knows exactly what they're going to say. And at Bergen, I, I like the way he summed this up. He says the people's demand for a king, for an earthly king, represents the political manifestation of an earth of a spiritual problem. Uh, so. Okay. You kind of have to wonder how many times when we have a political problem, is it the political manifestation of a spiritual problem? Oh man, don't get me started <laughs> on that business. Uh, I was because I just think I. Whenever I think about this, it's because you you have to think. I mean, if the elders of Israel came, and so what's going on here is they're saying we don't want to be responsible for for making decisions. Mm-hmm. And we, we want enough power to, to meet our agenda, but then we want to abdicate all the responsibility mm-hmm. for everyone else. Exactly. Exactly. And they, they just, they're not great leaders to begin with. And we've seen that over and over again. And, you know, we see how the system that God had approved that there be elders, but how it's breaking down because the spiritual condition of the nation ha- has just deteriorated. Mm-hmm. And so that deterioration, uh, you know, it, it dates back to Judges 2, when God says, I'm not fighting on your behalf anymore. I'm not going to go into battle with you because you have not listened. Right. And that's been the problem with the elders in Israel as a whole. They're, they're not listening. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's just, again, that reoccurring theme. So verses 10 through 18, I'm not going to read them. This is sometimes called the right of the king or the protocol of the king. Um, Samuel is going to be given uh, the nation the the um, what what a king's going to do basically is what he's going to start breaking down. Um, mm-hmm. Brueggemann says this is one of the most important pieces in Old Testament on the abuse of public power, and it's a very interesting speech. I do recommend you go back and and read it, but um, I'm not going to subject anyone to me reading that long of a passage. So Samuel, basically what he does is give a list of things that the king is going to take from the people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the word take is used six times. And so, you know, anytime we hear the word take in the Bible, you kind of want to go, wait a minute, what, what's going to happen? Because this is not a good word right? Um, so often. But the king is going to take sons. He's going to take daughters. He's going to take fields. He's going to take orchards, olive groves, grain, vineyards, servants, cattle, donkeys, and flocks. So he's going to be taking all of these things from the people. Mm-hmm. Well, and this is because they said they wanted a king like the king of other nations. All the other nations, So yeah. if you want a king that's going to act like the king of other nations, here's what's going to happen. Yeah. And 
so yeah, because we do kind of have this idea that, um, and I don't want to get too, <laughs> I don't want to get too much into the politics of, of today, but we do kind of have this idea that, uh, because the Kings amassed wealth and things like that in the Bible, that it's okay for, for our governments and even our churches to mm-hmm. amass wealth and, 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 and whatnot. Right. Um, you know, I don't want to go down like the whole list, but it, mm-hmm. it's almost like sometimes we see this used as a justification for government surplus and, or wastefulness and, and things mm-hmm. like that. And it's, it's not, and this is it, because it, we, we, we see this and people want to say, oh, well, this is, this is how the Kings of Israel operated and God must've been okay with that. And you're like, well, <laughs> no, he's he really not wasn't. necessarily. Yeah. And so, yeah, we do need to, well, to watch it, ourselves with that. And it's interesting that, you know, when God asked the people for something and, you know, like to build the tabernacle, what did he, they bring to him? They brought him the gold that he had supernaturally provided to them whenever they looted Egypt. Mm-hmm. And so he wasn't asking them to give him something that they had worked hard for or earned for themselves. He's asking them to, to give what he had already provided in, with his grace. And even the the sacrifices, the yearly sacrifices, most of those, you know, they're based on, you know, a percentage. They're based on um, household uh, goods, but they're also based on how rich are you? So if you're rich, you need to give a a heifer if you're a lamb. And if Mm -hmm. you can't afford that, then get a turtle dove. And if you can't afford that, you know, and so God makes concessions in what he's asking people to give Mm -hmm. where, where the government doesn't care. You know, he, he's not trying, the government is like, this is what we expect from everyone. And I'm not going to work with anyone on how, how it's going to be provided. This is just what you're supposed to give me because I am in power. Right. And we're, yeah, and that's not about any one government. That's just government. Government. Yeah. And so, because it, it, it does become this very uh, impersonal institution where the religion and the worship of Israel was always supposed to be personal. And so, um, but the, the, the list touches on every aspect of a person's life from that day and time. Mm-hmm. The only thing it doesn't cover is religion. Right. Now, this is Samuel talking. So you would expect him to talk about religion. I mean, this is a prophet of God. He's a priest. Why is he not talking about religion? The Thing is, Samuel's kind of skirting the issue, but he's he's hinting at it. Remember, kings represent the gods, whether mm-hmm. they're the actual embodiment, according to some religions, or they're just a placeholder. They they're supposed to represent a god. And one of the things the king is going to take, he's going to take that tenth. He's going to take the tithe, the part that's supposed to belong to God. So now, mm-hmm. in order to be a good Israelite, you're going to have to pay a tenth to the king and a tenth to God, and mm-hmm. you've just doubled your burden. And God is telling them, this is going to be a burden to you to have this kind of leadership. You mm-hmm. should have trusted me because there's freedom when you trust me. Right. And that's the other thing we miss. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying not to go on political rants, um, so just get, get moving before I get going. <laughs> okay, verse 18. And in that day... You will cry out because your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. So your king in whom you have chosen, 
Now, if you remember back in Josh, Joshua 24, verses 14 through 15, choose this day whom you will serve. Mm-hmm. And if you think of the king being a representation of a god, they're basically saying we're choosing to serve any other deity, anything else that represents any, anyone else, that, not you. Mm-hmm. They're, they're mm-hmm. choosing something other than God is basically what's happening. And, and Joshua says, if you choose wrong, there's going to be problems. Mm-hmm. You know, choose correctly. And God's going to bless you. He's going to protect you. And, you know, and that's what God has done. He's proven himself faithful in this over and over again. But the people, they can't remember it. They don't pay attention to it. And they don't care because it's not what they want in this moment. And God has said, if you're going to pray to someone else or pray for something else to lead you, I don't even have to answer you. Right. I- I'm not obligated to honor you because you're not honoring me. And so in some ways, the glory, instead of being sent into exile or captured by, by enemies, this is the nation surrendering it up. Mm-hmm. And they're surrendering not only God's glory, but they're also surrendering their own glory as God's people. So verse 19, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we may be like other nations and our king may judge us and fight our battles. Now, that we may be like other nations. They, they don't want a king who's like other nations, but that they want to be like other nations. Mm-hmm. They're really speaking out of their heart here. They're exposing what they want. They're tired of being the misfits. They're tired mm-hmm. of being the people who don't belong in this land. And instead of asserting their God-given right to possess the land, they said, you know, we're just going to give up. We're going to, to just fit in. And, you know, and that's, that's a temptation, I think, for every Christian. You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't really need to stand out. I can just go along with flow. And sometimes that's not what we're supposed to do. But there are three reasons. Be like other nations, to judge over us, and fight our battles. Okay, they've already succeeded in being like other nations. We talked about that in the last episode. They don't need a judge because God provides a judge when they need a judge. Right. And they don't need them to, to fight their wars because we've already seen that God had just defeated the Philistines. So the only real reason left is to be like other nations. You know, if you don't need a judge and you don't need someone to fight your wars, only the third reason's left. And I think they're trying to obscure that third reason in there by putting the other, you know, more pious and more proper sounding mm-hmm. excuses around it. Now, granted, some time had passed since that battle. It, it but, had. But there's also an assumption... We, there might be an assumption that or there were other battles between then. Oh, oh, you'd almost, uh, there'd almost have to be. Given just the state of affairs during that time, you, you really can't imagine there not being some kind of conflict with, you know, even just minor skirmishes. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, God had kept the Philistines at bay during the entire time of Samuel's reign, or I said Samuel's time as prophet and judge. So God had had kept peace for them, and they had been living in a time of you know, prosperity for Israel that they hadn't experienced in a very, very long time. Right. Certainly not under any of the other judges. Okay. And so, but to, to be like other nations, I mean, this is the one thing God has been actively working to prevent. When, they, when the nation of Israel started worshiping other gods, he sent oppressors, he raised up a judge, he delivered them. And... You know, God has been doing his best to prevent that one thing from happening. And finally, he says, you know what? You guys get to have your way. And so verse 21, 
When Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them into the ears of the, of the Lord. So he's fulfilling his duty as a prophet. Yes, God already knows what the people are saying, but he is obligated as a prophet to take those words back to God and, and to pray. Mm-hmm. So verse 22, and the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice and make them a king. Samuel said to the men of Israel, let go every man to his city. So God is still, he's going to give them a king, but you can almost hear Samuel just shaking his head. Fine, I'll do it. I'll take care of it. Just get away from me. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he is not happy about this. And, and that key phrase there, uh, like all other nations, that's going to carry through into our next chapter. And we're, we're going to start on chapter, uh, chapter nine. nine. Yes. And so this is the chapter where we meet Saul. And we are supposed to be making comparisons. We are supposed to be comparing Saul and, and Samuel and really seeing the difference between these two men. Even the names is a setup. Uh, Shul and Shmuel. The, the, they're so close. The only difference is that mem, or what we'd mm. say an M, in the middle. And I think that's interesting because in uh, Hebrew, that mem often represents the spirit. So there's kind of this implied little thing that Samuel has the spirit of God. Yeah. Sam, Saul doesn't. So we've already been set up to, to, um, to have a disfavorable disposition towards Saul because we, we're going to be reading key phrases. We're going to have some key locations. We're going to be expected to make connections back to the idea he, he's from the tribe of Benjamin. Uh, he's from the town of Gibeah. He, there's so many mm-hmm, things mm-hmm. that make him a guy that we shouldn't like. And we're supposed to remember that God's not thrilled about this. And this is why we aren't supposed to like him. And, and this is very much Samuel's attitude. Samuel. Samuel's very interesting in how he deals with Saul because he doesn't like Saul being the king. Right. But he doesn't seem to really dislike Saul as a person. And they have some really interesting interchanges. As a matter of fact, when, when Saul falls as a king, Samuel grieves over him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, well, you would. Yeah. But it's the person you installed mm-hmm. in that position. Yeah. And that leads for some interesting uh, speculation on, on Samuel as a person, too. So... We're going to begin in verse 1 of chapter 9. It says, There was a man of Benjamin, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath, the son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. Okay, so a lot of stuff going on in this verse. Yep. ton of stuff going on. Uh, it begins with the genealogy of Kish. Not Saul, but Kish. Now, if you go back to the first chapter of Samuel, it opens up with a genealogy, not of Samuel, but of Elkanah. Mm-hmm. So there's our first tip off, aside from the names, that we're supposed to, to compare. And both genealogies go back four generations. So they're establishing the people within the community where mm-hmm. they fit in the bloodline. Samuel is from the Levite tribe, God's appointed spiritual leaders. Kish is from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, this is the tribe that's responsible for the death of the Levite's concubine. He is a member of the tribe that was almost destroyed during the Civil War. And all of them, every man left alive, received a bride either from Jabesh Gilead. That was, they were the tribe that was, the city that was attacked and destroyed. And they Mm -hmm. took 400 women from them. 
or that their wives were from Shiloh, the 200 women who'd gone out to dance. Mm -hmm. So um, given the timeline, what's going on here, Saul's mother or grandmother was probably one of these women. Right. So he's got a questionable backstory to him. What, you know, how did Mm -hmm. he Mm -hmm. come into being? And then we have this really weird phrase in here, Benjaminite, the way it's written is, it's not the normal way it's written anywhere else in Samuel. It, it actually is a son of man of Yemenite. Uh, so it, it's, it calls attention to itself because it is such a weird spelling. So we're going to talk about why that's important. But the last line of the verse, he's a man of wealth. This is what's going to really tie things together. We saw this in Ruth when we discussed Boaz. Mm-hmm. Boaz is a worthy man, uh, literally a Gabor Chagel. Okay. So a mighty man of valor. Right. But also with that word Gabor. So when we hear uh, a mighty man of valor, we immediately go back to Gideon. Mm-hmm. He's a judge. He's the first man who's asked to be king of Israel. And he's an idolater. Mm-hmm. He builds the shrine. But this also takes us back to Genesis 6 with the Giborim. And so these are the offspring of the, the sons of God and the daughters of men back in that passage. Mm-hmm. So verse 2, we're going to keep going and then we're going to put the pieces together. Verse 2, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So Saul's a son of Kish. Mm-hmm. He's tove. He's good. He's good to look at. Right. He's exceptionally tall. Yep. And so, you know, you don't have Israelites who, um, you know, most societies, if you've got somebody who's taller than everyone else from the shoulders up, they're going to stand out. Yeah. You, you aren't going to miss them. So let's put the pieces together. So you got a son of man, mm-hmm. the same construction as sons of God from Genesis 6. Right. Um, his wife or mother was one of the women taken for the tribe of Benjamin. Mm-hmm. He's a mighty man like those in Genesis 6. Mm-hmm. So we have all these ties back to Genesis 6, kind of put, putting Saul's father in that role of one of the angels, one of the sons of God. Okay. So this means that Saul is being put in the role of the, the Nephilim, the, the, the illegitimate offspring of those unions. Right. And he's tove, another connection back there, because the, the girls, the women, mm-hmm. the daughters, men, they're tove, they're good to look at. Right. And he's tall. And the only people described as tall in the Bible are always enemies of Israel. Hmm. And they're the descendants of the Rephaim. Numbers 13.33, Deuteronomy 128, 2.10, 9.2, 1 Samuel 17.4. And we know that the Rephaim are not only tall, they're kings and heroes. And King Og and even an outside um, literature like Gilgamesh, these are who these men are. They're kings and they're heroes, and they're either a divinity themselves Mm -hmm. or they're the children of these divine unions. And, you know, we can talk about Zeus and all of his love affairs and children who go on to become great heroes. This is this is a theme that the Greeks picked up from the Mesopotamians and made it their own. So God is giving them exactly what they ask for. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
I mean, right down to the fact that the other kings of the other nations were the tall offsprings of the Rephaim. Yep. So he, he just not only says, here's a king, he says, here's the king custom made to order, and he's as close to a giant mm-hmm. as anyone in Israel can get to be. Yeah, what, uh, which is, yeah, very funny, that, that sense of humor that God has, that oh, yeah. this is what you asked for, this is exactly what you get. It's a, it's a dad move. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a total dad move. And, you know, I, and I think we forget uh, that, that this, this idea of, of being tall or being a giant was very much a part of the ancient Near East. Matter of fact, if you look at a lot of the, the carvings and uh, the representations of kings, uh, ancient aliens has made a big deal out of this where, oh, look, do you see this is an alien because he's so much taller than everyone else? And you can see on the carvings, yes, the, the king is presented as being so much larger than mm-hmm. everyone else. And I think that it is to show that how big they are, both in stature and in status. And yeah. so, uh, but that, that idea had a basis somewhere. And it was probably in a very physical reality, if we believe the Bible is true, that there were giants on the earth. So, verse 3. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you and, and, and arise, go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalashah. And then he did not find them. And they had passed through the land of Benjamin and they did not find them. So we're right back in that same area where everything went wrong mm-hmm. in the end of Judges. Mm-hmm. Almost every commentator agrees this serves two purposes. One, it's demonstrating that God is orchestrating everything. You know, Saul right. has got to get to the right place at the right time. And it begins with these donkeys who wander off. <laughs> it also is to demonstrate that Saul's a terrible shepherd. If he can't keep track of donkeys, then he's not going to have any luck with sheep. To be fair, donkeys are not exactly easy. Yeah, but they like their feeding spots. Well, and that's true. If, if a donkey knows that you're going to scratch its ears and you're going to give it some food, it's going to announce its location. Uh, fair enough, yeah. Sheep may or may not. I have never had a friendly sheep. We've had some sheep in the past. They really didn't care about people. They just wanted to go do their own thing. The, the donkeys were pets. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, there are, you can, yeah, if you work with them, but if, mm-hmm. if you don't work with them a lot, they tend to be, just do whatever they want. Oh, they can, they can be mean. <laughs> but, but the idea that he could lose something as large as a donkey, what, what's going on that he can't find them? And, you know, he's, he's looking all over the place. He's not doing the, you know he's not just sticking close to home he's kind of just wandering through the hills yeah it's not any kind of balaam connection here is there where there's <laughs> balaam was stopped by a donkey and you know Saul was left by a donkey i hadn't thought about that but you, you know, know there's any hmm uh i'd have to do more research before i accept or reject that premise so <laughs> yeah, but, no, I'm, I'm just, just but no it it is interesting that that this is the method that God would say, I want to get you there on time and I'm going to get you to the right spot. And we're just going to hide the donkeys for a few days. So, but, you know, when you can contrast this with how many times Israel's kings are favorably compared to shepherds, particularly David. Right. 
it, it really does kind of make that point. Uh, one of the young servants, uh, literally uh, the head servants, and the last time we had donkeys and a servant, we were with the Levite and the concubine. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're going to have connections back to that story, but he, which you know, even begins with they passed through the hill country of Ephraim. Yeah, and, I noticed that. Yeah, another, yeah, another connection. So now they came to the land of Zuf. And Saul said to his servant, who was with him, come, let us go back, lest he cease, and he's talking about his father, he ceased to care about his donkeys and become anxious about us. But the servant said to him, behold, there's a man of God in the city. He is a man held in honor, and all he says comes true. So now let us go there, and perhaps he can tell us which way we should go. So the land of Zuf, this belonged to Saul's grandfather, and it literally means honeycomb, the land of honeycomb. Okay. And so there's a connection right there with, with prophecy. And we talked about that with Deborah and... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So anytime we talk about bees in the Bible, this is, this is one of the symbols for, for prophecy. Um, Saul wants to go home, but the servant suggests a detour. Last time a servant suggested a detour, also with the Levite and the concubine. And he, let's go to Jabez and let's stay there. And, of course, the Levite refused. Now, this time, Saul listens. Mm-hmm. Also, we should note that the servant's never named. And remember in the Bible, whenever there's an unnamed servant, it's usually a type for the Holy Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that Saul's making this journey and it has been so orchestrated by God, the idea of having an unnamed servant, you know, kind of direct and be kind of hands on makes sense. Yeah. And so we're going to see that the Holy Spirit's really very active in the story. So. um Another interesting point in the story is Saul doesn't seem to know who Samuel is. He doesn't seem to know that his grandfather's land, on his grandfather's land, is a prophet of God. Not only a prophet, but also a judge of Israel. A judge, yeah. He, he seems to be completely clueless. The servant has to tell him, hey, we can go over here. So, you know, it's 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 funny to me because, you know, we all like to think we're like David, but in this story, I think I'm probably a little more <laughs> like Saul. <laughs> who's just, he? Who's this? I don't know. Yeah, I, I've been home, minded my own business and, you know, politics, politics. Anyway, um, but verse seven and eight, Saul, Saul objects uh, because he says he doesn't have a gift to bring this man of God uh, and Ishalahim. They don't even have any bread left, and it's probably not that they would have given him bread, but they're so broke they can't even buy anything to right. feed themselves. Yeah, so, saying you don't even have two coins to rub together. Yeah. And well, then you later go on to find he only has part of one. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he has a quarter of a silver shekel. That's about three grams of silver. So about what's in my wedding ring. Okay. Um, and he just, the servant happens to find it. Just, just you know, oops, hey, look what I found in my, cor- in my the corner of my pocket. And so the servant offers it up. So he paves the way for, for Saul to actually go and find these donkeys. Now, this is a really good servant. Uh, you, you know, how many servants, one, have any money? Two, are willing to just hand it over so the master can find their property. Well, I mean, I would assume that he's probably a good servant. Mm-hmm. And that, they, you know, if he's a good servant, they probably treat him well. And, and that Saul and his, you know, if all this land belongs to the grandfather, Saul and his dad are probably good for it. Yeah. I would assume. But I mean, just to kind of see that that willingness, I, I think, says something about 
about who his character. Yeah. And because so often you don't think of servants having anything. So maybe, yeah, maybe he was very well cared for. And it does seem to be that even whenever Saul uh, eats later, the servant sat the head of the table too, which is interesting. Right. Well, I, I do. I do also think it was probably one of those, uh, you know, having the good strategy. It's kind of like Saul, like doesn't really want to do it. He's like, look, just go. I will pay <laughs> to stop looking around for these donkeys. <laughs> I've had enough <laughs> because my feet are sore, my back hurts, and tired of sleeping on the ground. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, and well. And how long have they been at it? I mean, evidently it's been a while because mm, dad's worried. They're out of bread. Yeah. And this is a big guy. This isn't somebody that's going to get beat up on the side of the road. He, he should be able to take care of himself. And so why is his dad worried about him? I mean. Well, because they were in the time of the judges. <laughs> this is true. But you would think of all the people, Saul wouldn't be someone that you're going to pick on unless you've got an army with well, you. Well, yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, and, and some people did. So. Yeah. So. um. But the idea that Saul thinks that he has to pay Samuel is even telling because you don't pay Samuel. Samuel, Samuel's going to make a really big point of the fact that he doesn't take money for prophecy. He doesn't take money for for speaking God's word to people. Mm -hmm. And so Saul, he's completely misjudged the entire situation right off the bat. And this is how he gets introduced to us. We... We are supposed to be uh, as unimpressed by this guy as humanly possible without him just doing something blatantly evil. Right. He, he is, he's the bumbling kid, and he's always going to be the bumbling kid. And you almost feel sorry for him more than you despise him because he, he tries so hard to get it right so many times, and he, he's just going to mess it up. And, you know, it's, it's interesting that in his what it reveals when he thinks he has to pay the prophet, because this was the normal practice for other prophets of other gods, Mm -hmm. not God's prophets. So why does he know more about those practices than he does about the prophets of Israel? And that's, that's kind of a tip off too, that he's not necessarily as in tune with the, the um, religion of his country and his fathers as he should be. Right. And you kind of, you've you got a lot of doubts that should be dancing around in your head about him at this point. So verse nine, formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, come, let us see a seer for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. I think that's such a funny insertion. <laughs> yeah. It's like a great little parent, parenthetical. Well, and it shows you that this was edited after the fact. Yeah. And so it, it, it yeah, it's like, okay, we realize our audience isn't going to get this, the, this term is kind of antiquated by the time it's being used. And we know that the term was used until the 8th century uh, because it's found in the book of Amos. Uh, it is, um, we, we, it helps us date the book of Samuel and it tells us that the final form of Samuel wasn't finished until mm-hmm. around the 8th century or else they wouldn't have explained this term. Right. So this is one of our major tip-offs on, on the time of composition. Uh, now, the story originated way before that, and I'm not saying that because it wasn't written down or in the final form until after the 8th century that it didn't happen. I'm just saying that we're looking at a number of stories that were brought together by an editor to create a full narration, and we're going to see that even more as we go through because there's going to be some places where stories don't always make sense if 
one person had just written them down right as they happened. So the most the most common word for a prophet is navi. It means called one. It's from the Akkadian navu. Mm-hmm. And uh, a roe is a seer. That's that's the word here is seer. And that's someone with insight and foresight into us. And basically they see into the spiritual realm. Sure. So um, there's no formal transition that we can say, okay, here's, here's where we stop calling people a roe and they became a navi. Now we do see the, the title navi being picked up and used much more frequently under the monarchy than we have at any place else. Um, you, but we do have it before that because Abraham's a navi. And that's the first time we encounter the term is with Abraham. Now, Jeremiah is a Navi, and he's in exile. So the Navi's present both before and after. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, um, every every Roe, a seer, is a Navi, but not every Navi is a Roe. So you can be a, a prophet and not be a seer, or you can be a seer and you're, you'll be automatically a prophet. Okay. Because a seer actually sees what is happening, and they recount that, where a prophet may just receive a message, and they have to tell that. So it, you get that going on, and we're going to see seers are still very much a part of the, the court um, prophets, especially as we get into Second Kings, and we've got some fun stuff, I think it's Second Kings, with Ahab and different things that go on there where a seer sees what's happening in the divine council. Right. And so, but this is the first time we find it in the Bible and somebody's got to, to help us understand this. Um, the, the rabbis say that the term Navi uh, being applied to the seers was actually a way to denote that the Navi now had an official role within the court. And that's the reason why it starts to become even more popular under the monarchy. Right. Um, how true that is, I don't know. There, there, there's a little bit of um, information that makes you kind of want to lean that way. But anyhow, um, one, one of the things that Aroe does also is because he can see, not just into the spiritual realm, he can see things that other people don't know. And this is why he's used to find lost objects. Sure. And so this is why you would go for him, uh, go, go to him to find out, where are my donkeys? Mm-hmm. You know, something a good shepherd doesn't need Aroe for. but the thing is, with, with a Navi, it's not proper to consult a Navi for, for us, for lost objects. I mean, to, to give you a little context, imagine going to Ezekiel and asking him to help you find your donkeys. I, I can only imagine what his response would, would be. I mean, Ezekiel is not somebody who has time for the mundane details of life. <laughs> He, he is seen into the spiritual realm. He's looking at God on his chariot. Who cares about your donkeys? That's your problem. <laughs> so. Yeah, I, I suppose. I mean, I just, the, the personality is so different. And I feel like Samuel, uh, you know, because he's not, he's not part of the monarchy yet. He, and so there isn't any formality and there isn't any kind of grandiosity that goes along with being a prophet. Mm-hmm. He, he, it's still very much in the trenches work with Samuel. Yeah. And I think by the time we get to Ezekiel, the, the prophet does have the elevated station. Plus, you know, Ezekiel's a, a priest uh, like Samuel, but he's also been a part of the temple complex. Mm-hmm. So there is a little distinction in how they view and approach the world. And I think that's kind of interesting when you see how God has used these people from various uh, classes and, and 
uh, backgrounds to economic backgrounds to still proclaim truth while that reflects the influence of these things on their life. So anyway, enough with that rabbit trail. Um, verses 11 through 13, um, it, it recounts Saul and his servant going into the city and there they meet the young women at the well. And this is kind of the evening. Uh, they, they ask the women, they say, Hey, do you know where the seer is? And they have this really protracted conversation, so much so that almost every commentary mentions, this is a really long conversation between (laughs) Saul and the girls. What's going on here? Long time just to ask directions. (laughs) Right. Uh, They they do tell Saul that Samuel's in the city. He just got here and he's getting ready to offer a sacrifice in the high place. And he's going to officiate over the, the sacrifice and... Everyone who's invited will get to eat there. So some interesting points about this, this interchange. Okay, number one, Saul meets girls at a well and no one gets married. So, I mean, this is kind of, that's an interesting point. Um, it's early in the evening. So it's right before sun go down. It goes down. This is when you right would. Right before sun go down. Sun go down. Yeah. <laughs> so, um this is the t- right before sunset. <laughs> yeah, right before sunset. Um, this is the uh, time when water was drawn from the well by the women, and this is still the the customary time in in that part of the world for women to go draw water. So okay. we know the time. Uh, the well is one of the few places where women and men actually could talk without any major suspicion. It was okay for them to have these conversations because. Well, pretty open public area and everyone yeah. everyone had to get water yes they had to be there and now the rabbis they say that the conversation went on so long because the girls were flirting and which you know well if he's tall and pretty we like our tall guys that's what can i say and all the timing just happens to line up samuel just happened to have gotten back that day saul just happens to arrive it just happens to be almost dinner time the girls just happen to be at the well to answer the question so you know we're we're really seeing that pieces are at play and god is just he's doing all the right things to make things fall into place to to accomplish his vision and his goal and his goal is to make saul king Uh, now we do have this interesting reference to a high place in this verse and you know, normally high places are not, uh, they're not condoned. But again, we don't have a temple. Shiloh has been destroyed. We are hoping and praying that something's going to happen to change, to, to unify the country again in worship. Mm-hmm. But until then, there is this, this period where it, they're allowed to worship in the places that Samuel has set up. And Samuel has chosen high places, not because... Uh, he's trying to connect with Baal or Asheroth or any of the other gods that are worshipped, but because these are just very centralized, easy to to um, access locations, and plus it's honoring to God that you would give him, you know, the premium real estate, yeah. basically. So, um, verse fourteen. This is Saul and his servant. So they went up to the city, and as they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out towards them. Oops! Just accidentally ran into the prophet. <laughs> And on his way to the high place. So the narrator stops and gives us a flashback sequence uh, in verses 15 and 16. And so in verses 15 and 16, God's been talking to Samuel. And he says, hey, there's going to be this guy from Benjamin. He's coming up here. 
and you're going to anoint this dude to be the prince of Israel. And this is going to be the guy who's going to save us from the Philistines. And it's because I've heard the cries of my people. So mm-hmm. God says, there, there's, I have a plan. This is what we, we need to do. And he reveals it to Samuel. Literally, uh, the Hebrew there is he uncovers Samuel's ears. And in many ways, it's kind of a confusing passage because, you know, God hasn't seemed to be happy about this. And here he's saying, hey, here's all the great things that this guy's going to accomplish and you need to make him king because he's going to do this, this and this for me. And I'm doing it because the people cried out. But we were just told that when the people cried out, God isn't going to answer them. And it, it, it doesn't seem to fit with anything that's gone before. I mean, he, God doesn't seem to be upset or even, you know, opposed to the idea by the time we get to this place. So, you know, did God change his mind? What, what's going on here? And well, you know, if you've kind of ever been in one of those positions where you're like, I'm not even mad anymore. <laughs> We're just going to make this happen. <laughs> Let the chips fall where they may. <laughs> they, they cried and cried for it. Yeah. Now they got it. Well, you know, and I think sometimes you get there as a parent. Enjoy your jalapeno, two-year-old. <laughs> you know, it's that. Uh, yeah, I, I never did that as a parent. Um, it was a pepperoncini. Anyway, um, but the language that God is using here echoes Hannah and Moses. You mm-hmm, know, the cries yeah. of the fl- affliction from the you know deliverance from the oppressor. Well, and what? Yeah, and that's that is. Whenever you read it, it, and I was thinking of like the parental thing, the, the parental thing, like, well, I've heard your cries of affliction <laughs> that I'm withholding whatever this item is you, you think, think you need. You need. <laughs> yeah. And normally You're just going to die if you don't get it. Yeah. Um, that's, of course, I might be bringing some of my own baggage to this. <laughs> well, and I think we see that in Judges. We, we see that that father figure kind of parental uh, attitude that God has to Israel. And I I love it because it does make him relational. Mm -hmm. Uh, It doesn't leave him, you know, way out there in the heavens and unaffected by humanity. This is a dad who cares about his kids and he's willing to let them take the risk and and get the hard knocks so that they can learn and grow. But at the same time, he's not going to let him be hurt too badly. So, um, but three times in his speech to, to Samuel, he, um, he repeats the phrase, my people, anoint him prince over my people, save my people. I have seen my people. So he's not relinquishing them. You know, he's still maintaining that, that position of they're mine and I'm going to let you step in, mm-hmm. but don't make the mistake of thinking they're yours. Right. And that's really the mistake that a lot of the later kings are going to make. And he never calls him king. He calls him Neged. Uh, Neged is prince, or what the ESV is translated as prince. A better uh, translation might be leader or regent, maybe, maybe a, a governor. He, uh, he's not sovereign is basically the point. Sure. It, there's nothing to indicate he's sovereign. So um, verse 17, when Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here's the man whom I've spoken to you about. He is the one who shall restrain my people. This is a weird word, restrain. Uh, it's used 46 times in the Bible, uh, but usually it's imprison or silence mm-hmm. to hold back. 
It even means sterility. Very rarely does it mean restrain. It's usually used in connection with some kind of disciplinary uh, action. Hmm. And this is the only time we find it in association with ruling. Um, So the idea here and the suggestion here is that God isn't just using Saul to rule the nation. He's using Saul to discipline the nation. Right. And so what we're seeing here is that God's got something going on below the surface that we just weren't quite prepared to, to see yet, or he wasn't prepared to reveal yet. And we're gonna, he's going to take us through this whole journey. Verses 18 and 19, uh, Saul, he approaches Samuel, and he, you know, he's standing in front of Samuel, and he says, do you know where the seer is? And, you know, Saul is talking to Samuel, and he <laughs> has no clue who the most famous man in Israel is. <laughs> you know, and they've had this long conversation at the well. Did he not get some kind of description? Did he not, you know, what's the what's the deal? You no, know, well, that that's really funny because I actually I have I have I'm not like I love music, but I'm not like someone who studies who's who of of this that and the other. And there, I had a regular customer uh back when i worked at guitar center and i had no idea that he was like that he had been featured multiple times on the cover of (laughs) guitar player magazine and he was just a guy you know so that i like i said i'm kind of identifying a little bit with Saul on this one i hadn't thought of it you brought it up but you know one of our my regulars used to be jj kale and i had no idea who that was until after i I'd sat and talked with him. I don't know how many times and heard crazy stories. And then he started telling stories about him and Clapton. And I'm like, wait, what are we doing? Hanging out with Eric Clapton. And I mean, yeah. just, so, I mean, you, it happens. It does. And I, he, I, I, he probably I jammed has. several times with <laughs> some of the best, best guitar players. And I'm like, yeah, you're really good. Like, Hey, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it's just funny that I find out uh, later on that, oh, that... I should have been more impressed. should have been paying a lot more attention. But I do, I think they appreciated that a little bit, that I wasn't like, oh, starstruck. Well, yeah, yeah. And, and any friend I know who has any notoriety that's kind of there, it's like, oh, it's nice just to be a regular person for a while. So, yeah. yeah come to me. I almost have face blindness. Just, we'll hang out. Yeah. And we are no respecter of persons. Um, uh, no. Anyway, uh, but no, I guess we kind of are. But when when he he says this, Samuel's reply, it, it, it's so forcefully worded in the Hebrew. I am the seer. It's like, you idiot. I mean, he, Samuel just, you know, what do you think you're doing? You're not recognizing me. And but the thing is, we're going to find out that this this is an ongoing problem in, in Saul's life. He's not going to recognize the people right in front of him over and over again. Right. And, you know, this be- particularly becomes a problem with David. And I mean, he's introduced to David like three times. And every time he's like, who is his? Who, who, what's going on? You know, <laughs> he's. It, Saul seems like he was like the really nice guy who got put in a situation that was just beyond his grasp. He, he probably, if he, Oh yeah. Yeah. He was, I, 
I mean, you can, you can, I mean, you can see several times that there's certain things in the task. They just, they're just outside of his skill set. Yeah. Which I think is why Samuel is so involved in his kingship because, mm-hmm. <laughs> because he has to go, no, 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 do, do you have a clean shirt? <laughs> like, you know, yeah. <laughs> you no, know, Saul needs somebody to hold his hand. And I think Samuel sees that. And, but this really, it becomes, it becomes a major part of the dynamic going forward uh, for all of the relationships with the kings and the prophets, mm-hmm. because they, they set the tone that you don't get to separate these two offices. If you're going to have a king, you're going to have a prophet, whether you want one or not. Right. And there's times that the kings really don't want one. And <laughs> definitely times when you <laughs> <laughs> just, well, and you know, it's interesting to see how they respond because, you know, Saul, he listens to Samuel to a degree, and he he's like, you know, the kid who you tell to you know clean the kitchen, and so they wash the dishes, but they don't wash the pots and the pans on the stove, or they don't wipe down the counter, because in their mind, cleaning the kitchen is, you know, loading the dishwasher. Or they put your cast iron in the bottom shelf. Yeah. yeah. Did your child do that? Are they no, still no, alive? Okay. No, no. Uh, okay, I've good. Just, I, I saw a meme about that. No, no, my cast iron is safe and sound. But yeah, I, it, it's... It's this thing. It's a like, southern thing. Yeah. Don't, don't mess with our cast iron. Um, it's like, I thought I saw both kids earlier. So, <laughs> but it, this, this interaction that Saul and Samuel are having here are, is going to be very significant in how Saul's kingship progresses, but it's also going to help inform us of how to view David's kingship when it arrives, because we almost have to have Saul and all of his buffoonery to to appreciate who David is, mm-hmm. because David is such a contrast. And one of the contrasts I heard set up, and I thought this was a very interesting thing. You know, uh, when I I think we're all familiar enough with the story, we'll get there later and look at more of this. But when uh, Samuel tells Saul, "You know, go to Gilgal, wait for me seven days," and you know Samuel doesn't arrive until six days, 23 hours and 59 minutes later. Mm. And he, Saul offers up the sacrifice and you, Samuel jumps his case. David would have been like, I'm getting ready to fight a war. I don't have time to wait on you. And this is what we're going to do. Right. You know, David really had a completely, he listened to the prophets and he heeded their correction on certain things. But at the same time, his, his throne was not one that was governed by the prophets. Right. right. Saul's very much is. And uh, in some ways, David is just more of a king than Saul was equipped to be. And from a very personal uh, personality and heart level, wisdom level, mm-hmm. just, just name it. And I'm not saying David's perfect. We're going to get to talk a lot about his flaws later. You don't so. say. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm looking forward to getting more into this, but I, I think it's probably a good place to stop because they're getting ready to go eat. And that reminds me that you and I probably need to go eat. Yeah, but well, I gotta. Yeah, we gotta start the grill soon. So yeah, well, they're gonna have grilled meat too. Hey, speaking of cast <laughs> iron, we're gonna shrimp fajitas tonight, everyone. In case you're wondering, uh, yay! <laughs> so anyway, everyone, thank you for joining us. Um, if you want shrimp fajitas, uh, come to Oklahoma and let us give us some advance warning. We. <laughs> We'll cook for you. Yeah. So um, if you... Nathan will cook for you. You well, don't want me doing it. <laughs> well, we'll cook for some of you. Yeah, there's a vetting process. Uh, I'm kidding. I don't know. <laughs> we'll figure it out. <laughs> so send us a message. We might. Uh, but in the meantime, if you want to be a part of the conversation, if you want to contact us and maybe get food, uh, 
hit us up on at ravencreeksc.com or uh, find us on all the social media, Raven Creek SC for uh, the Raven Creek Social Club. Google that. You'll find us. And um, whether you want to or not, whether you want. Well, if you're Googling that, I imagine you want to find us. I hope so. So. <laughs> or maybe there is another Raven Creek Social Club that exists. I don't know. There isn't. I well, I couldn't find one. Uh, if you really like what you heard and are still listening, maybe hit up Patreon. Uh, give us a couple bucks to keep the show going. Uh, we do appreciate that. And big shout out to our paddle store folks. Yes. Yeah. The the Raven Creek paddle store, uh, that, that gets thrown around as though people know what it is. That's mm-hmm. the closed Facebook group for Patreon supporters. Um, we do that mainly to keep uh, trolls out just mm-hmm. so that we can have a, a productive discussion on anything. If yeah. You want to go deeper into the material. And we do have some really good discussions there. We do. So come on by and uh, we'll be glad to see you there. Um, other than that, I think we're wrapped up for the week and we will see you next Monday. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash SC. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.